Well, thank you, Dave. Good morning. How's everybody? Good. Good to see you. Welcome to the Parkway Church. My name is Zach. One of the pastors here, if you've got a Bible, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, starting in verse 25. That's 1 Corinthians 7, starting in verse 25. While you're turning there, this uh, last week, I actually had jury duty, and uh, though the case is uh, over, I'm uh, not mainly going to talk about that. What blew me away was the jury selection process, and let me tell you why that blew me away. It is absolutely terrifying that we allow 12 people with no legal training, no philosophical training to to evaluate arguments to get to sit and determine somebody's fate. I get it, it's 4th of July. It made sense in 1776, right? When the king was appointing judges and they were ruling against the colonist. But today, we gotta think of some other way to do it, okay? So it was the the kind of questions during the voir dire process, or as we say in Texas, voit dire, when they're questioning all the people in the room, they would ask good questions, but the answers that people would give Guys, we're insane, okay? So they would ask a question like, do you think that you can sit in judgment on another? And someone would raise their hands and say something like, I believe the Bible, so I think crime is bad. And I'm like, was that, was that the question? Do you think the Bible says crime is good? So I'm sitting in my chair the whole time, just angry, nervous. I look over and sitting near me is a guy, I kid you not, wearing dirty open combat boots with gray carpenter jeans tucked into them, a suit top, brown leather gloves, a full face gas mask, not like a little COVID mask with the the vents on the side, full face gas mask, Robin Hood hat with a feather, okay? That is not the guy that should be judging anything. In fact, he should be judged by the fashion police. Now, needless to say, I didn't get selected, you know, being a white male pastor who likes guns is not what they're looking for. Uh, but it was a terrifying process. Now, as I was going through that, I thought to myself, this is a lot like what's going on at Corinth. You have people kind of doing whatever seems right in their own eyes. They are misunderstanding sexuality, they're misunderstanding marriage, they're misunderstanding divorce, they're misunderstanding spiritual gifts, all kinds of craziness is going on at Corinth because the people are just doing what seems best to them. And so Paul is writing 1 Corinthians as one big rebuke to the church at Corinth to teach us what we should not do. This is a blessing to us. The church at Corinth has already stepped on the landmines, so we don't have to step on them. And so let's pray and we will see what he has to say today. Father, we come to you through the Son and by the Spirit and we confess that you are great and we need your help. We thank you for this text. I pray that you would open our eyes to see wonderful things in your word. We love you and thank you. It's in Christ's name that we pray, amen. Let's start with verse 25. Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Look at that first phrase, now concerning concerning the betrothed. What is going on here? In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul is dealing with questions about marriage, singleness, sex, etc. And today he's dealing with this group called the betrothed. Now let's talk about who this is. Literally in Greek, it's just the word virgins. Okay? It's just the word virgins in Greek. Your ESV translators have taken a position on this to say that it is an engaged person, someone who's betrothed. But it could also be, and Tim Hollis brought this to my attention, it could also be in reference to a dad who's thinking about giving his daughter in marriage. Okay? We don't know exactly throughout this text if it's talking about a dad giving his daughter in marriage or if it's talking to the engaged or the betrothed person themselves, but it doesn't really matter because Paul's advice is gonna be the same either way. He's basically gonna say, when it comes to marriage or singleness, you get to do what you wanna do. 
So I think it probably is most, most likely written to engaged people, but there is the possibility that it is written to a dad thinking about giving his daughter away in marriage. But if you want to make a little note in your Bible above that word and just write the phrase single people, that would be appropriate as well. Because it's not saying here that they have to literally be virgins, you know, like vampire food. It's saying that if they're single, if they're engaged, if they're a daughter whose dad's gonna give an engagement, if they're widowed, if they're the innocent party in a divorce, Paul's advice would apply to them either way. And here's his advice. I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. What does that mean? First of all, Paul is not saying that this is just his random opinion. He's not saying that, you know, you have an opinion and I have an opinion and they're the same because this isn't from the Lord, this isn't scripture, just rip this part out of your Bible. Remember, when the apostle Paul writes scripture, God is writing scripture. When Paul is giving his authoritative opinion as an apostle, God is giving his opinion and all God's opinions are facts. What Paul is saying by saying that the Lord didn't talk about this is he is saying in the ministry of Jesus, there are some things Jesus didn't address. Let's throw out some things Jesus didn't talk about. Driving a car, excellent. What's another thing Jesus didn't talk about? What is it? What is it? Guns. He did talk about swords, to be fair. But yes, he didn't talk about guns, right? There's a bunch that he didn't talk about. What Paul is saying is that you can't open to Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John and then see what Jesus says about betrothed people who they live in the last days and should they follow through with their marriage. And so what Paul is simply saying is he's saying, I'm gonna give you some God-ordained advice But at the end of the day, whether you are single or married is up to you. It's your decision. It is is something that's adiaphoran. Adiaphora issues are things that are neither commanded nor forbidden. You get to pick whether or not you wanna be single or married. The Bible leaves that decision up to you. Now, why is Paul having to address engaged people at all? Here's probably what's going on at Corinth. At Corinth, they have something in their church that we also have in the American church today. And do you know what it is? It's overly spiritually weird people, okay? Now, when I say overly spiritual, I don't mean you can't love God too much. That's not what I mean. You know, though, the pseudo-spiritual people, the people that are weirdly, fakely spiritual, they're always happy and glory brother and God talked to them this morning and everything is just great. Despite the fact that Jesus is a man of sorrows, they're never sorrowful. Whenever I meet that overly church person, the first thing I think is not this is a godly person. I think, I bet they're a serial killer. Okay? And what they're doing is they're overcompensating by trying to act like they're so spiritual. Well, what you have at Corinth is you have these falsely spiritual people. And what they're probably saying is they're probably saying this if you are engaged, you should break off your engagement. Or if you're a dad giving your daughter in marriage, don't give her in marriage. Do you know why? Just be spiritual. Jesus is coming back. We know he's coming back. Let's live like he's already come back now. And so Paul is having to write this against their asceticism. What is asceticism? Asceticism is not where you deny yourself sinful pleasure. You should deny yourself sinful pleasure. Asceticism is where you deny yourself non-sinful pleasure and think that somehow that puts you closer to God. You see this actually a lot throughout church history, especially in the early church with some guys called the Desert Fathers who will like only eat lettuce and they'll fast from sleeping and they'll certainly never get married. They'll stay away from a woman. What's probably going on at Corinth, on the one hand, you have licentiousness, people doing all kinds of things they shouldn't. But you also have this weird view that if we deny ourselves good things, somehow that will make us spiritual. But listen to what the Bible says against that. First Timothy 4, one through five. 
Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. Now what are seared? What are the teaching of demons according to the Bible? Verse three. Who forbid marriage, there it is, and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. So you have to watch out for these people that act like they're spiritual and they think marriage and sex within marriage is bad and they think asceticism is the key. God is gracious. He has given you non-sinful things to enjoy for his glory. Paul continues, verses 26 through 27. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. Now, if you're single, do not freak out yet about that last part. Paul, in the very next sentence, is gonna say, you can totally get married if you want to. Let's talk about what he is addressing here first, though, before we move on. Underline the word in your Bible, present distress. Notice that Paul's advice here is conditional on what's going on in, within, within his context. Now, what is the present distress that he's talking about? Some scholars think that there's this famine going on in Greece at this time, which there was historically, and that that might be the present distress that's afflicting Corinth. Other scholars think that it's Roman persecution. Remember, at this point in history, Christians are being persecuted and killed for their faith, and Greece, where Corinth is, is within the Roman Empire. That's what some scholars think. Other scholars think that he's just talking about the end times, what is called eschatology. If you ever hear us use the term eschatology or eschatological or eschaton, that word in Greek eschaton means last or end. So eschatology relates to the last things or the end times. So one of the questions that I get most asked as a pastor is this, ready? Zach, do you think we live in the end times? And I don't really know how to answer that. My, my answer is, in a sense, yes, we live in the end times, but so did Paul. Yes, we're in the end times, but we've been in the end times for 2,000 years. Don't think of the end times the way you think of the end times, just because things are weird in America. Remember that the end times is a theological category that the biblical authors use for what happens when people start getting up out of the grave, namely Jesus. So yes, we've been in the end times, but we've been in the end times for 2,000 years. What you're really asking is, do you think we're getting close? And I think, well, I mean, we're one day closer than we were yesterday. But throughout church history, everybody who's thought that they were the last generation has been wrong. They thought this in the early church. They thought this when Constantine was converted to Christianity. They thought this in the year 1000. That seems a significant number, and so they thought Christ would come back then. They thought this during the Reformation. Luther thought this. Jonathan Edwards thought this. People thought this in 1942 with Hitler's, you know, Hitler and World War II and everything going on. And everybody has been wrong, okay? So yes, we live in the end times, and yes, we're one day closer than we were yesterday, but you need to remember, the end times begins 2,000 years ago. Paul lived during the end times. You have to interpret the Bible the way the Bible wants to be interpreted, okay? Not just the way that we want to interpret it. We say the gospel's got to go to all nations. The book of Acts says it already has when it goes to the Gentiles. So we have to come to the Bible without our presuppositions. So what people are really asking is they're saying, Zach, things are so crazy. That's how I know Christ is coming back. But remember what Jesus says. He says, when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, meaning things being crazy, the end is not yet. That he's coming at a time when you don't expect it. When everyone is saying peace, peace, which nobody is saying right now, by the way. 
You were expected it in 2020, didn't you? See, you thought, COVID, I'm expecting it. And Jesus is like, "Uh uh-uh, when you don't expect, that's when I'll come. So some people think that he's talking about eschatology. What I think is probably what Paul is talking about is eschatology, the fact that he lives in the end, but also mixed with the fact that for, for, for Christians, this side of eternity, life is difficult. We have a lot of worldly troubles. We're persecuted and we're tempted and we're misunderstood and we have just normal life we have to deal with. We get tired, we get sick, and we live in the last days. And so I think all of that comes together in Paul's mind and that's what he means by this present distress. So here's the advice that he gives in light of the present distress. First of all, he says, if you're bound to a wife, do not seek to be free, okay? Now, if you didn't hear both Jeff and I taught sermons on divorce a few weeks ago, please go back and listen to those. The short answer is, if you're a Christian, you don't get to get divorced unless your spouse physically commits adultery or physically abandons you. All other reasons are not grounds for divorce. You can listen to that uh, from those sermons. Paul would also here, though, be addressing somebody who is engaged. He's saying you don't have to call off your engagement if you don't want to. Now, then he addresses single people. He says, are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife, okay? So, some of you in here are single. Some of you are fine being single. Some of you don't wanna be single. So let me address this briefly. I have only met in my life a few people that have what I consider to be the lifelong gift of singleness, okay? I do not have that gift. If my wife died, I would get married super fast, okay? (laughs) Not because I don't love my wife, I do. And not because I have some honey on the side, I don't. I just know marriage is for me, okay? But I have met, that's also the case for most of you. Most of you don't have the gift of singleness. But I have met some people that have the gift of singleness where literally they say, I'm content being single. I'm not lonely, I have friends. I have community at the church. I'm not really tempted towards sexual desire. I'm fine being single. And those people have a gift of singleness either temporarily or lifelong, and that's a good thing. Now, if you're thinking, Zach, has God called me to singleness? Well, he hasn't called you to something that's not a command. If you don't want to be single, you you don't feel like God's mad at you or something if you want to go get married. Go get married, okay? But, But I think it would be helpful for us just to take a second and realize that in the Bible, especially in the New Testament, singleness is seen as a good thing. You know, in the Middle Ages, being married was seen as junior varsity. It was seen as less spiritual. That's what the commoners did. And it was the clergy the most holy of people who are single. Today, I feel like in the church, it's kind of reversed. We kind of look at single people like there's something wrong with them or when are they gonna hurry up and get married or when are they really gonna, you know, get their life started or something like that. That's not the view of the Bible. To make my case as strongly as I can, Jesus was single. The one who, though truly and fully God, also lived the most truly human existence ever, who's truly a man, and he lived a full God-honoring life as a single guy. Paul, as he's writing this, is single. We have a tendency to maybe move beyond the fact that singleness is a blessing. Singleness is a good thing. When you are single, you have more time to do big things. This is why so many philosophers and theologians throughout history have been bachelors. Guys like Plato, Rene Descartes, John Locke, Benedict Spinoza, David Hume, Immanuel Kant, Georg Hegel, Ludwig Wittgenstein, and others. And theologians including Athanasius, Augustine, Anselm, Aquinas, Scotus, and others. Singleness is not an inferior existence or else Jesus didn't choose the best thing. You'll hear this sometimes when it comes to the same-sex marriage debate. I've heard people say, Zach, so you're saying that if someone's a Christian and they're same-sex attracted, that they can never get married to someone of their own gender, but rather they're 
condemned to be single for the rest of their life. Listen to the language they use, condemned to be single. The Bible says that being single is sometimes better. In fact, the Bible would say that some people have made themselves eunuchs, that they've been castrated for the kingdom of God. So before we move on too quickly, maybe consider the goodness of singles for the church, the goodness of being single, and then Paul will move on in a second, okay? Verse 28. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. Woo! All right. Good. I'm very glad to hear that, Paul. You were scaring me there for a second. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. But those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. Let's look at that first phrase there. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. If you want to get married, the Bible gives you the freedom to do that. Now, let me clarify. I do know that it is more difficult to find a good spouse than I sometimes make it sound. Finding a spouse is easy, but finding a godly spouse who you don't hate is more difficult, okay? But if you want to get married, the Bible would say you're not doing anything wrong, you're not doing anything less spiritual, go and get married. I know that I was supposed to be married. I hated being single, I got married as soon as I could. Same thing with my wife. Do you know how I met my wife, by the way? This is a good story. So, I was at a mutual friend's, we were at a mutual friend's birthday party, and you know, I was doing what I do, hanging by the bar, putting out the vibe like Dumb and Dumber. And this smoking hot brunette walks through the door. And so I think, yep. And so I walk up and I shake her hand and she shakes my hand and she kind of lingers a little bit. And I think, oh, okay. She's picking up what I'm laying down. (laughs) She wants a slice of the Zach stick, medium rare, right? And so we start talking and start hanging out. She asks me what I'm planning on doing career-wise. And I tell her, well, I'm in school studying theology. I want to be a pastor. And I say, what about you? what do you want to do? And she goes, oh, I'd like to be in ministry, maybe be a pastor's wife. That's what she said to me. (laughs) Basically, the first time we met, she basically proposed, okay? (laughs) And I thought, yeah, you want to be a pastor's wife now that I said I'm going to be a pastor, right? And so I thought, she said that she's 18 at this point, I'm 22. And so I thought either this girl just knows what she wants or she's going to murder me and make a suit out of my skin. (laughs) And she's crazy. It's one of the two. I'm actually Katie wearing a Zach suit today. This is how you know. It's what happened. So it was the first. She just knew I want to be married. And I knew I want to be married. Later on that night, I'm having a different conversation with somebody else in the room. And I asked him, if you could only have a son or a daughter, which one would you have? And Katie, who's not in the conversation, says, you do want more than one kid, don't you? And we were married 11 months later. Okay, so if you want to be married... The Bible gives you the freedom to get married. You shouldn't feel guilty about that. But listen to this next phrase, and I think this is one of the funniest verses in the Bible. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that, okay? Paul is saying by worldly troubles, two things. One, you just have day-to-day issues you have to deal with in life. But two, you are marrying a sinner. No matter how godly you are, no matter how much time you spend reading your Bible, no matter how much you pray, you're gonna marry a sinner and you're going to fight. You are going to have worldly troubles. Here's how you should select a spouse. Ready? Ask yourself this question. Is this the person I want to fight with for the rest of my life? That's what you should ask. Because you will. Well, Zach, me and my husband never fight. Well, I'm sorry you don't care enough about each other to deal with issues. You should fight. That's what's going to happen in marriage. The goal is to learn to fight like a Christian, to fight cleanly. And so ask yourself, is this the person I want to argue with I want to deal with difficult things with with the rest of my life. Choose someone who's godly. It is easier to argue with godly. Choose someone you're attracted to. 
it is easier to argue with pretty or handsome. (laughs) Choose that, okay? But you will argue with that person. Life has normal troubles. Most of life, especially married life, is just regular. It's not all champagne and strawberries. It's taking out the trash, and it's mowing the lawn, and it's doing your taxes. It's boring sometimes. It's normal. I have a friend, and right after she got married, she told this story. She said, I went to the grocery store today to buy a mango, but they were 50% off, so I bought two mangoes. And I thought, is that your whole story? That story made me want to drown. That's the worst story I've ever heard. That. Let me, let me just recap this story, okay? So there's the rising action. I went to the store to buy a mango. There's the climax of the story. They were half off. And the denouement, so I bought another mango. Did I get that story right? That's a married person's story. It's very normal, very average, very boring, okay? We all have stories like that. I have stories like that. I'll say something and someone will say, why don't you tell me that again? That was amazing, (laughs) mockingly. You don't get to do the things you want to do. For example, when I sleep, I like to sleep spread out. I sleep like a starfish. But my wife is there, and if I bump up against her lava skin at night, I'm gonna get sweaty, and so I've gotta stay on my side of the bed. I like sleeping all night, but I have kids. And they come in, and because they're like three feet tall, they're right in your face. And they don't gently wake you up. They're like, Dad! And you're like, ah, and you yell, and they yell, and you're crying, and they're crying, and you don't go back to sleep. There are difficult things that happen because of that, that if you are married, you will have troubles this side of eternity. I think a great example of this was last week, the staff was together, and we were talking about this sermon. Okay, we always go over sermons before and after uh, a Sunday. And we were talking about this sermon, and we were talking about what does it mean that we're trying to do ministry, but that when you get married, you're distracted, you have worldly troubles. And then I get a text from my wife that she's locked herself out of the house. So I leave the meeting and I drive home and I let her in and I drive back and the meeting is over. And I thought to myself, this is an excellent example of how you're distracted from ministry when you have a family, okay? You will have additional fears, you will have additional anxieties by having a family as well. When I was single, And if I lost my job, what happens? Nothing. I can sleep on a friend's floor. But if I lose my job now, I could lose my house and my wife has to go back to work and who's taking care of our kids? It adds stress. When I was single, I thought, I might die. But now I think, what if my wife gets a brain tumor? What about when my kids start driving cars? Are they gonna get into a wreck? I sure hope that nobody molests them. I sure hope the kind of fear that you have for your kids is the strongest fear you'll have and it never goes away. Even when they're older, you always worry about your kids. And Paul is saying, marriage is good. It's not good for man to be alone elsewhere in scripture. Marriage is good, but with it comes worldly troubles. Know what you're signing up for before you do it. Verses 29 through 31. Now here's the weirdest, most difficult part of this passage to interpret. He says this. This is what I mean. Tell us what you mean, Paul. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. Notice the eschatology. That's why I said that I think there's an eschatological element here. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, so you can play video games all day and date around, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, so, you know, be sad, but don't cry, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, so you can be happy, just, you know, don't smile or something, and those who buy as though they had no goods, that's the very definition of buying. When you buy something, you have goods. And those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. Well, that makes no sense. If you're dealing with the world, by logical implication, you have dealings with it. It seems like every single thing that Paul is saying here not only is false, he's saying act a lie, but it goes against other places in Scripture. 
Let's look at this. He says, let those who have wives live as though they, live as though they had none. But that's not what 1 Peter 3, 7 says. It says, likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. So like you do have them. Showing honor to the woman is the weaker vessel since they are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. He says, let those who mourn as though they were not mourning. But that's not where the Bible says elsewhere. James 4, 9, when you're in sin, says this, be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. He says, let those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. But that's not what the New Testament says elsewhere. Philippians 4, 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say, rejoice. What is going on, Paul? Let those who buy as though they had no goods, but that's not what Ephesians 4.28 says. It says, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something, things that he's bought, to share with anyone in need. And it says, let those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. That's not what 1 Thessalonians 4.11 through 12 says. It says, and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands in the world is the idea as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders, that's those in the world, and be dependent on no one. So what is going on in this text? In every single one of the things he says to do, elsewhere the Bible says, that's not right. What is going on? The solution is actually very simple, and here's what it is. Paul is making a rhetorical point, and here is his point. Live in light of eternity. He mentions marital status, He mentions emotional status, he mentions money, and he mentions your dealings with the world. And his point is not that you take any of these things literally and send away your wife, he's just said don't do that. His point is to say, are you viewing all those things in light of eternity, or are you living like a practical atheist? You're just viewing them from this side of eternity. New Testament scholar Frank Thielman says this, Paul's point here is simply that the form of this world, or its day-to-day affairs, is not eternal. Christians should prioritize their human relationships, material possessions, and worldly dealings accordingly. Or as the New Living Translation, which is a good translation to read, it's not the best for serious study, but it's not a bad translation to read. I think it nails the interpretation, though, of this passage. It says this, but let me say this, dear brothers and sisters, the time that remains is very short. So from now on, those with wives should not focus only on their marriage, Those who weep or who rejoice or who buy things should not be absorbed by their weeping or their joy or their possessions. Those who use the things of this world should not become attached to them. That's what he's saying. Is your life as a Christian viewed in light of eternity when you think of your marriage, when you think of your kids, when you think of your possessions, when you think of your emotions? Are you viewing those in light of eternity? Let me give you an example. Imagine that you're a soldier in World War II after D-Day. So D-Day has already happened. The beaches have already fallen to the allies at Normandy, and they are marching towards Berlin, okay? Imagine you're a soldier in that period. Now, that's a weird period to be in in the war because in a sense, the war is already over. In a sense, the war is already won. Once the allies win at D-Day, they're going to win. It's inevitable. But is the war fully over yet? The war's fully not over yet. Hitler's still in power. Marines are still fighting in the Pacific. The war's not over. So if you are a soldier at that point in the war, you live in this weird liminal stage, this weird in-between stage, where in a sense the war's over, but in another sense, it's not. And so the way that you're gonna view life is gonna be different. When you win a battle, you'll rejoice, but that won't be the only thing you feel because you know there's more battles to fight. When you lose a friend on the battlefield, you'll mourn, but you also have a sense of hope because you know you're gonna win the war. 
You might decide to marry some European girl when the war is over, or you might decide to wait because you have some girl back home. You're not gonna try to collect a bunch of things on the battlefield to just save up material possessions. You could die the next day. You're living in this in-between period, and so it's gonna adjust the way you view all of life. The same is true where you live as a Christian. Christians live in this in-between period. When Jesus storms the beaches of Bethlehem, if you wanna say it that way, the first coming of Christ is D-Day. He conquers Satan. That's what the cross does. That's what the resurrection does. The battle has already won. If you're a Christian, you're going to win. But we're still waiting for the day. We're still waiting for Christ to come back so we don't have to deal with all the stuff that we're having to deal with. You see, we live in both two ages. The present evil age, marked by sin, Satan, and death, but we also live in the age to come where God is fixing everything that's broken in the world. And so because we live in this in-between period, we're like that soldier in between D-Day and V-Day. And so we should prioritize everything in our life accordingly. I'll give you another example. When I stay in a hotel, I don't care much about the hotel because it's not permanent. I care about my house, but when I'm in a hotel, do you think I hang up my towels? No. I'll just throw them all on the ground, I don't care. Some magic sprites or fairies will come and they will put them up somehow. Do you think I make the bed when I'm in a hotel? No, it's not my hotel. I'm there temporarily. I enjoy it, but it doesn't stress, it's not mine. If I'm done eating a burrito, I might just chunk it against the wall, I don't care. I don't do that, I don't deface private property. I'll go to the pool, but I know it's not my pool. I'll go to the workout center, but I know it's not my workout center. If I leave the hotel and it burns down, I don't really care. If it goes under financially, I don't really care. I enjoy it, I like it, but when I'm there, I realize this is all temporary. I enjoy it, but I'm not overly invested in it. It doesn't control my emotions, it doesn't control all my decisions. Paul is saying your whole life is like that. Your whole life is like that. So yes, marriage is good, get married if you want to, or be single, doesn't matter. Yes, rejoice, but realize there's ultimate rejoicing coming. Or mourn, but realize there's ultimate rejoicing coming. He's saying view all of life in light of eternity. So, there are two errors that you can fall into, and this is the same thing that's happening at the church at Corinth. You can have an under-realized eschatology, which is where you forget that Christ is coming back, and you spend all your time building up your kingdom now. That's an under-realized eschatology. Your world is about money and business and fame and more influence on Facebook and I want a bigger house and I want a boat and I want all these great things. It's about building my kingdom. That is an under-realized eschatology. Jesus is coming back and so you need to understand your life is a vapor, the Bible will say. Some of you live like practical atheists where you forget that we live at the end and that Christ is coming back and we don't know when and so everything is this world focused. Now, none of the things I just mentioned are wrong in and of themselves. I want you to have a good business. I want you to make money. I want you to have a vote and maybe invite me along with you. But it's the heart that forgets that Christ is coming back. That's an under-realized eschatology. That's what some people have at Corinth. Other people, though, have an over-realized eschatology, okay? They, they forget that we live in the middle of these two ages, and they only focus, you know, they like to read the Left Behind series, and they talk about blood moons, and they just try to, try to figure out when Christ is coming back, or something like that. That would be an over-realized eschatology. We're not to do that either. In fact, there's a, a great song that Tim, uh, Tim mentioned to me. It's called The 21st of May, and it's by a band that's kind of a folksy bluegrass band called Nickel Creek, not to be confused with Nickelback. 
And it's set up like this old gospel hymn, and it sounds kind of fun. Like you listen, and you're like, praise the Lord, Jesus is coming back. And then you start to realize they're predicting the date that he's coming back, but they do it to make fun of it. So I'll read you a few verses and chorus and such. It's time to bid this whole world goodbye. Oh, glory, time to fly away. We'll meet our Savior in the sky. Hallelujah, the 21st of May. And you're like, what? And that's what they're doing. They're trying to get you to catch you. The chorus, they laughed Why Noah built his boat, then cried when came the rain. They mock me now, but I will float on the 21st of May. And then the last verse, which is the genius of the song, is this. Well, I've never been so sure, and I've never led no one astray, except for the fall of 94, but hallelujah, the 21st of May, right? And so they make fun of the fact that they miss it. You don't, you don't want to have an under-realized eschatology, but you also don't want to have an over-realized eschatology. Let me say it another way. When Jesus comes back, he wants to find you acting normally. He doesn't want to find you huddled down in your basement with your shotgun and your Purell and your toilet paper. <laughs> he wants to find you acting normally. He wants you to be a good husband or a good wife. He wants you to raise your kids. He wants you to get an education. He wants you to be working your job faithfully. He wants you to be involved in the life of the church. He wants you to be caring for the poor. He wants you to be evangelizing. He wants to find you acting normally, not weirdly. Not overly, fakely spiritual like the people at Corinth that say you shouldn't have sex with your spouse or that think that you know, there's no resurrection or something like that. C.S. Lewis has an excellent quote that I'm gonna read for you. C.S. Lewis is writing at a time right after World War II and in the Cold War where the threat is nuclear war. You could apply this to something like COVID, but the threat in his day is nuclear war. He says this, the first action to be taken is to pull ourselves together. If we're all gonna be destroyed by an atomic bomb, let that bomb, when it comes, find us doing sensible and human things. Praying, working, teaching, reading, listening to music, bathing the children, playing tennis, chatting to our friends over a pint and a game of darts, not huddled together like frightened sheep and thinking about bombs. They may break our bodies, a microbe can do that, but they need not dominate our minds. Verse 31b, here's the reason for all of this. Why should we live in light of eternity? Paul's gonna give us the reason. For the present form of this world is passing away. Underline that phrase, present form of this world is passing away. He's not saying this. He's not saying that God is gonna destroy everything that's physical. You, you sometimes hear something that sounds like that in Christianity. So let me be very clear. God is not gonna just scrap the universe and when you die, you just become a soul and you go up into heaven, which is this floaty cloud place where there's elevator music playing and it, you know, there's naked baby angels playing harps and it's a place where a golfer never hits a slice and a fisherman never misses a catch. That's what we think of. You hear that sometimes at funerals of what the world's gonna be like. That is not biblical. This is why I don't like songs like All Fly Away or songs like This World Is Not My Home, I'm Just a Passing Through. This world, when it's redeemed, will be your eternal home. The Bible teaches that there is a new heavens and a new earth. God will purge the earth as through fire, Peter tells us, but it's a purging. It's still very tangible, it's physical. Yes, when you die, you go rest with Jesus up in heaven with your soul. Totally yes and amen. But that's not the end of the story. The Bible teaches that your soul and your body will be reunited, that you will be bodily resurrected like Jesus was. Physically, tangibly, materially, corporally. You will, the, the, the eternal state for a Christian will look a heck of a lot more like the Garden of Eden than it does Michelangelo's Sistine Chapel. So when he's talking about the present form of the world, he means the sin-scarred, broken world with its day-to-day -day affairs. That's what he means. The, present the way the world is now is gonna pass away, 
But it's not as though we're not gonna be resurrected or something. So that's what he means by, for the present form of this world is passing away. Let me end with a pastoral word in light of this text. We live in times that are crazy, right? We live in times that are absolutely crazy with disease and division and fighting and riots and all kinds of crazy stuff. I remember this 4th of July, I like to celebrate our freedoms that we used to have, right? The world has gotten really weird and so it's produced in us a lot of fear, a lot of anxiety, a lot of worry. And so we then try to control things. Here's what you need to understand. This is where there's a practical application of this text for you. The only way you will ever find peace and rest is by looking to eternity. The only way you will deal with the stress and the craziness is not by trying to save more money, not by trying to create a, you know, some sort of a panic room, not by trying to hoard a bunch of things, not by trying to control everything. You can't control it good enough. You can't control those things. It is only by looking to eternity. You have a God who loves you. You will one day be raised. There'll be no more weeping or crying or pain. That is what's gonna give you the courage to deal with whatever life throws at you. John Calvin has an excellent quote I want to read. It's long, but it's worth your time. Listen to this. Now, wherever you turn, all things around you not only are hardly to be trusted, but almost openly menace and seem to threaten immediate death. Embark on a ship, you're one step away from death. Mount a horse. If one foot slips, your life is in peril. Go through the city streets. You are subject to as many dangers as there are tiles on the roofs. If there's a weapon in your hand or a friend's, harm awaits. All the fierce animals you see are armed for your destruction. But if you try to shut yourself up in a walled garden, seemingly delightful, there a serpent sometimes lies hidden. Your house, continually in danger of fire, threatens in the daytime to impoverish you, at night even to collapse upon you. Your field, since it's exposed to hail, frost, drought, and other calamities, threatens you with barrenness and hence famine. I pass over poisonings, ambushes, robberies, open violence, which in part besiege us at home, in part dog us abroad. Amid these tribulations must not man be most miserable since, but half alive in life, he weakly draws his anxious and languid breath as if he had a sword perpetually hanging over his neck. What my boy Calvin is saying is that you cannot find peace by trying to avoid the trouble. It will find you. You can't avoid it. Some of the people I know that got most sick of COVID were the ones that stayed locked down the entire time. You can't avoid it. Right now, you could have a tumor growing in your brain and not know it. I don't care how many vegetables you eat. I don't care how much CrossFit you do and tell others about it. You could have a tumor growing right now and you could have a brain aneurysm. When you leave here, you're gonna get in your car and there's gonna be other people in metal boxes going 80 miles an hour like this on their phones, okay? There's nothing that promises that you're not gonna get sick, that you're not gonna die, that you're not gonna lose your job, that something terrible is not gonna happen to your family. Your kids could get into a car wreck. Even if you live in a nice, safe, gated community, you stop and get gas and someone can stab you. You don't avoid, you, you don't find peace by trying to avoid the things that cause anxiety. You find peace by running to the one has, who has already promised you eternity. You find peace by running to the one who's already said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. You find to the one that says, I love you, you're forgiven, you're justified, it's finished, it's done. The story ends well for you if you're a Christian. And so what Paul is saying is live all of life in light of that reality. Let's pray as we prepare our hearts for communion. Almighty God, we thank you for this text. We confess that we are very prone not to live in light of eternity, myself included. I have a tendency to believe that what I love, I must love now, that the focus is now, 
that if I can get rid of all the anxieties, then I'll have peace now, only to find that every week there's new anxieties. I pray for Parkway, that you would be with us, that you'd protect us, that you would guide us. We thank you for your word. We confess that it, it, it breaks our sin against its unmovable rock. We love you, we thank you. Would you be with us in these weird times? It's the name of Christ that we pray, amen.